me for just a few minutes and allow the Holy Spirit to just open your heart today in every area again no matter which category personally that you may have been deposited in for just a few minutes in the third chapter here I'm going to begin at the first verse and I'm going to glean through the first four verses very quickly because it just simply sets the context as Solomon is writing to his son. Now, if you're familiar with Proverbs and you understand that sometimes in the book of Proverbs, the precepts that he gives changes verse by verse. Sometimes they're not connected to the one in front and the one behind. But I believe in this particular passage, it was all one consistent thought. He actually alludes to the context of a father teaching a son. In the fourth chapter, as he begins to exhort concerning wisdom, he said, as my father shared with me, he's referring to David. He said, when I was tender, the only in the eyes of my mother, I was the only beloved in the eyes of my mother, my father said to me. So now Solomon finds himself in that very same place with his child. We don't know which son it is that he's speaking to. But in the first verse, he says, my son, forget not my law. This is not a reference to the law of Moses. This is not to the Torah, the five books of the Old Testament. This is just the law of life that Solomon is living. He's saying, don't forget the pattern of law that I'm teaching. Don't forget the pattern of life. Let your heart keep my commandments, the things that I'm sharing with you, so that as you grow and as you mature, it says, length of days and long life and peace shall they add to you. And if you've ever had a godly parent or grandparent that's ever taken the time to sow into your life, I'm telling you, they are affording you a great privilege, and that is to be able to glean wisdom from them and learn from their successes and their mistakes and the kindness that they would show to you to say, look, if you'll follow some of these things, it will extend your life. It will give you, it will, you can avoid some of the pitfalls. How many of you is, uh, would say, if I had just listened to mom and dad, maybe, I could have avoided some mistakes that I made. And that's really what Solomon is saying. He said, let, let not mercy and truth forsake thee, third verse, bind them upon your neck and write them upon the tablet of your heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Look at the fifth verse. Many of us could quote this verse by heart, even if you didn't know the actual passage that it's extracted from. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. How many of you agree to those words today? Look, but let it continue though. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on thine own understanding. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. How many of you believe in that today? You may believe that what Solomon is saying here is he's saying, don't simply lean on what you think. Don't rest entirely upon the precepts that are in your mind that may not necessarily be the wisdom of God. Don't create a mindset that is against the knowledge of God, but you've accepted it as a, a correct path for your life. But trust in what the Lord says. Trust in what He says. He will be the one that directs your path. Look at the seventh verse. He said, be not wise in your own eyes. Don't be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be a health to thy navel and marrow to all thy bones. And so in essence, he's saying it will cause you to be healthy and whole. If you learn to not lean on your own understanding, if you'll learn to say, God's got a better plan. Come on, somebody. God's got all wisdom. By wisdom, God created the earth. God has given us an opportunity to gain and to glean wisdom from Him. 
But we have to be careful because Proverbs himself would say the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart will try to, uh, to create for you a plan or a path. And many times you'll find yourself wrestling what you perceive to be what's right against what God has said is what's right in the Word. And what Solomon is saying through this passage of Scripture is, he's saying, in your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll direct your path. Don't become wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you know more than God. And so when you begin to form doctrine that you're living by, every one of us live by a set of inward rules. We may not have, we may not have a set of goals or we may not have a, a life purpose that we've written out on paper or certain principles and precepts that we're taught to do in today's culture, especially business practices. But every one of us live instinctively by a set of inward goals or, or, or morals or values that we have inside of us. And that's a great thing as long as those inward goals and morals and values are born of God. But if they're not, they will take you down a path that God doesn't intend for you to go down. And they will compete within you against the knowledge of God. It was that way in the life of Jesus for just a moment when he confronted the heresy of the Pharisees. Because he said this to, the, to those in Mark 7 and Matthew chapter number 15 as well. It says, by, he said, you have taken the commandments of men and you have made them, I'm paraphrasing, you've made them equitable to the commandments of God. You have to be very careful to make sure that what you're holding to inside of you has been approved and it is actually in, that is actually consistent with the knowledge of God. So he said, don't be wise in your own understanding. Don't lean not on your own understanding. Follow the purpose and the plan of God. You say, well, Pastor, in the context of what you're sharing with me today, in the context of giving, how does that intertwine? Look at the ninth verse. Honor the Lord with our substance. Oddly enough, this familiar passage of Scripture here about honoring the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase, look at the tenth verse. So shall, here's the promise. So there's the exhortation. This is the exhortation from Solomon, the ninth verse. You as an individual, he's speaking to his son, honor the Lord with your substance. Son, you're going to increase. God's going to give you increase. You don't compare your increase to someone else. Whatever increase God gives you, you honor the Lord with that increase. That's the exhortation. Here's the promise. Look at the tenth verse. So shall your barns be filled with plenty, and your presses shall burst out with new wine. It's a promise from God, isn't it? That if you're faithful, he... Come on, he's faithful. And it's the will of God to bless his children. And God's given for us for whatever reason, whatever, I, I don't know the heart and mind of God for whatever reason. I don't know why. But God gave us giving as a mechanism to create an opportunity for him to bless us. Does that make sense today? So in this passage of scripture here, he's challenging both his son and it's extended to us here today. Then he picks up the 11th verse in the same first person account to his son, my son. And this is something that I think all of us have to be mature enough in the context of what I'm ministering to you. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. And don't be weary of His correction. Because if God loves you, 12th verse, and He does love you, He will correct you the way a father would correct the son in whom he delights. God delights in you and he loves you enough to send a squeaky voice preacher like me to stand in front of you today and to challenge you, even in the area of your giving. Because I want you to see today that it is a component that God has placed in the word of God that it will allow him to put a blessing upon your life. 
It will give you a peace in your heart and a contentment knowing that you're being faithful with what God has committed to you. We're all simply stewards over the resources that God's committed unto us. And if you think for one moment that God doesn't take account, you are wrong. God takes account. He said he's numbered your hair that falls to the ground. Come on, somebody. The Bible says that your words that you speak, you're going to give account of in the day of judgment. Come on. So whatever resources that God has committed unto us, we're going to give account of before God one day. And so I want you to know the danger and the error that been, that's been in the pulpit in days gone by is that many times we as preachers have tried to manipulate giving in the church through the spirit of fear. And it's easy to do, to try to strike fear in your heart that God's going to smite you if you don't become a faithful giver. That if our, if our offering containers are empty, God's going to... That's not the goal of this pastor today. This goal is, as Solomon was teaching his son through the book of Proverbs, my goal is to give you the good word of God till it becomes written on the tablet of your heart. And therefore, your giving is not born of coercion. It's not born of manipulation. But it is a motivation that is created by the knowledge of God. It's written on the tablet of your heart. And you are moved by what you have hidden in your heart. And you see this as the extension of your faith. We say so often here at our church when we begin the worship service and then we transition. And Jojo oftentimes now leads us into the giving of our offering. We say that we believe it is an extension of your worship. How many of you believe that when we begin to worship, no one should be excluded? No one. Everybody's got a reason to worship. Oh, I'm going to keep fishing until I get a response. Everybody has a reason to worship. I read the psalm this morning, and he said the psalmist David in Psalm 147, I believe it was, 148, said, while I yet live, I will praise the Lord. Psalm 150 says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Nobody should be excluded in our worship unto the Father because he deserves our worship. Well, I want to echo that same word to you today. Nobody should be excluded in giving to God. Nobody. Let me begin to come against the, 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 the mindset that many of us, even in the church, that have accepted. And I know this is probably not a fair debate because I'm not giving you a microphone. So it's not necessarily a fair debate, but I'm going to be the voice of correction for just a moment of time. This is something that I have had to combat over the years in the minds of many that I have dealt with on a personal basis. And some people feel as if they are too poor to give. Argument number one, I don't make enough to give. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say about that for just a moment. The Bible tells us that there was a day he was standing against the treasury. That meant it was opposite of him, and he could see the treasury. In ancient Israel, in what was called Herod's temple, there were 13 large containers that would allow people to come and bring their offerings into. doesn't tell us which one Jesus was looking at, but he was simply watching people like we do, coming forward and giving in their offering container. I'm sure their offering container was much larger. I have a, Our popcorn bowls at our house are much larger than that. And he was watching, and some that were giving of their abundance gave much. And that's a great place to be in life. And he did not condemn that in any way. There's nothing wrong with giving out of your abundance. Matter of fact, Ephesians 6 says, if you are rich in this world, that you should be very generous in your giving. Come on, somebody. God has blessed you. He's blessed you, so you give out of your abundance. He didn't condemn. 
But the Bible tells the story that there was a widow woman who came and she gave two mites. Now, in the context of Jesus' generation, that was, I think, about a half a day's wage. And Jesus said, as he turned to his disciples, he said, this woman's giving supersedes all of those others that have given. He said, for they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her, out of her need, out of her poverty. Here's how you can know that just because you may be deemed poor in this world's standards, but that's not an exclusion from giving, Jesus did not stop her hand and say, you're too poor to give. Rather, he commended her as a woman of great faith because she gave out of her need. So that argument to me is muted by that principle of faith right there. Isn't that right? Number two, the second argument very, very quickly. I don't believe tithing is for the New Testament church. I don't believe tithing is for the New Testament church. Well, that would take much too long to argue that fully today. But let me tell you, if you're a student of the Scriptures, you study the Word of God, we understand that tithing had an origination point that was not in the Mosaic Law. It did not originate with Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the carnal law of commandments written upon stone. It didn't come from the book of Exodus, and it didn't come from Leviticus, and it didn't come from Numbers, and it didn't come from Deuteronomy. Tithing is born in the live stream of God's people to a particular day, a particular day when Abraham, the father of the faith, Abraham is, is defined by the word of God as the father of the faith. And actually, you know what you and I are defined as today in Galatians 4? You know what you are called? By faith, you are a son and a daughter of, of not of Moses, but of Abraham. Genesis 14 captures the fateful moment when Abraham has gone to war. And in going to war, they have won their victory and they've captured the spoil of five separate kingdoms. And he's returning from the war. He's, he's not even a warrior, but God just gave him victory. And he's coming and he's got spoil, the spoils of victory in his hands. And he is met by a king by the name of Melchizedek. You'll learn more about Melchizedek in the weeks ahead. The Bible speaks of Melchizedek as he, he's different from that lineage of, of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, which would come many generations later. The Bible doesn't give his beginning or his ending. Does it give his genealogy? Does it tell us who his father or his mother was? Does it tell us when he was born? Does it tell us when he died? But the Bible says prophetically of Jesus that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's a beautiful portrait of who Jesus is. The Bible says that Melchizedek served a twofold purpose. He was both the king and the priest of an ancient city, not of Israel, because Israel was not birthed, but of that Judean area called Salem. And most historians believe that that ancient city that he was the king and the priest over would later one day have Jerusalem, Jerusalem added to it. And it was Jerusalem. And so here's this ancient patriarch, the father of the faith, that comes and is met by Melchizedek, and he takes of the spoils of war, and he separates a tenth, a tithe. The first word, of the first usage of the word tithe in all the scriptures appears in Genesis 14, and he gives it to Melchizedek, the kingly priest who foreshadows that of Jesus. And the Bible says, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And the scripture says, the lesser 
who is Abraham, is blessed by the greater. He is Melchizedek. And it sets in motion what would become the principle of the tithe. The principle of the tithe would then become the commandment of the tithe in the law. But you and I that are now in the New Testament church don't live under the carnal commandment, but we live under the principles and the shadows of. Come on, somebody. We do live under the shadows and the principles of the Word of God, of that Old Testament and of that example. So I think that's an argument. I could take you so much deeper. I could take you so much deeper, but I'm not going to today. But I want you to know today you have to be very careful to don't lean on your own understanding. Don't make up doctrine that has no validity in the eyes of God. But to convince yourself that this is the will of God for you and your family. Come on, somebody. Because let me tell you, sir, let me tell you, ma'am, what you're doing. You're setting a precedence for your children. I'm just telling you. If they see you gain increase and fail to honor God, then that principle is going to be established in their life. And it's going to become a generational, not blessing, but a generational curse. And you know what you'll become? I'll say this very respectfully. I say this not to condemn anybody, but I say this only in love as a father who, as the scripture says, it corrects those. You will become a generation of takers and not givers. And you have to, I wouldn't want that precedence for my children. I would want to be one that taught, listen, whatever God gave us, come on somebody. No matter, I don't compare it to anybody else, but whatever God gives me, I see the value and the principle of the tithe. If Abraham brought a tithe, if Jacob brought a tithe, come on, if the children of Israel brought a tithe, if Jesus mentioned the tithe in Matthew 23 and said, don't leave this undone, then I would want to be found guilty of associating with that type of divine spiritual heritage. Come on, somebody, and allow that to become a part of who we are. As believers, come on, I'm preaching a lot better than y'all shouting here today. That's okay. I'm confident in the call that God's given me. And this is the born of love. I understand. I understand today. I want number three. Here's the one that you have to be careful of your own reasoning today. Let me tell you. Many people say, Well, I give other ways. I give other ways. You should give other ways. You should give other ways. You should give your time. Come on, the church, and He deserves it. Come on, somebody. You should. I know there's a lot of way. I know that all of your giving is not contained to this silver basket right here. God forbid that all your giving is contained to that silver basket. God forbid. But remember what Jesus said, I just mentioned it a moment ago in Matthew 23. He said, these you ought to have done and not leave the other undone. It shouldn't be one without the other, but it should be both. We should be benevolent in our community. We should serve and work actively in the church. And when the opportunity for us to give, we should not compare it to other people's. We're not trying to say but they, it's about just us as individuals saying, God, with all my increase, I'm going to give you. Come on, somebody. Let me share with you here for a few moments and I'm going to close. I know it's hot in here today, but it's a good word this morning because this is a part of who you are. Let me tell you who we are as the Assemblies of God. Let me tell you what First Assembly is. Let me tell you about our adoptive style of worship. It's very important that you understand this. And then we're going to close with just a couple of gleanings from a couple passages of Scripture this morning. Let me tell you about our adoptive style of worship. You say, what do you mean by a style of worship? I'm talking about there are a lot of ways to worship God. There's a lot of ways that you, the, the New Testament expounds for us. And the church, the church is very diverse. 
the church, the worldwide church of the Lord Jesus Christ is very diverse. It, they, they worship a different mechanism. Some have very elaborate temples and uh, buildings and, and, and some have more modern and contemporary and some are very traditional and all these kind of things. Some don't even come together in a temple or a church or a building of any type and some worship through loose ends like the, the house church movement and all those things. So I, I'm not here to say one's right and the other's wrong. I'm just telling you about who we are. What, what have we done? We have chosen as our fellowship, First Assembly of God, we have chosen... We recognize that we are born of New Testament theology. However, we glean from our Jewish roots. We've been grafted into the olive tree. I want you to know today, I never come to this building and think that this temple, this facility, this steel and this mortar and this plaster that's on the walls, I don't call this the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Know ye not. That you are the temple of God. That's the distinction in Christianity. We understand that. In the old covenant, the temple of God was in Jerusalem. But now we are the temple of God. We are the habitation for the Holy Spirit. But we still come together. And when we come together, the singular moment when we as individuals come together, then collectively for that moment in time, we become the house of God. 1 Peter 2, we shared it in Sunday school class, says that you become your lively stones. You're built up a spiritual house where you offer sacrifices. 1 Corinthians 14, the 26th verse says, when you come together, when the church comes together, whether we meet in this building, whether we were to say next week, I don't care if it's nine degrees, we're going to meet out on the bypass property that this church possesses. And we didn't have a shelter, we didn't have a tabernacle or a tent or a building. But when we arrived together and we joined our faith and we had nothing but an acapella singing, at that moment we become the house of God. That's our belief system. We believe that God unites us together in that singular moment. We're copying a measure, the image, the shadow of Judaism. And we're gleaning it to the New Testament church. And we see that in the Old Testament practice, there was a high priest. And we know that Christ has become our high priest. But in essence, that means there is a pastor. And then there was a priesthood. That means there are pastors. I'm preaching a lot better than y'all shouting today. I'm just telling you. I'm just... Y'all catch up with me because I'm not coming back there. Y'all catch up with me for just a moment. We have a pastor and we have pastors. And then we have Levites, people that roll their sleeves up and they work diligently for the cause of this church family, for the kingdom of God. The image is so close that you can take what we do and we can see what they did through Judaism and through their relationship with God and you can see it glean through pass into the church just as Israel believed in worship we believe in worship we believe David was a worshiper and so are we come on somebody I will enter his come on with thanksgiving I will enter with praise I will come in I will sing a song if I don't like the song they're singing I'll sing my own song glory to God I'm going to give God glory and praise. The Bible says I'll clap, I'll sing, I'll shout, I'll dance, I'll worship, I'll twirl, I'll fall down, I'll pray, i exalt the name of the Lord. That's what we do. That's who we are. We believe the Word of God preached carries a distinct anointing upon it. The same way as it's read, as you not only read it, but when you hear it preached, there is a divine anointing on it because God, through the spoken Word, creates faith in our heart. 
That's why you part of the reason why you come to this house. You come because you believe that God could take an uneducated Wilburn graduate and God can give him a word born of the Holy Ghost of God and it can carry in it the mind and the will and the wisdom of Almighty God. That's one of the reasons why you come. And it happens Sunday after Sunday. It's a revelation of the truth of God. Thirdly, we believe that as ancient Israel was empowered to bring the tithes of all their increase into the house of God, then so do we as a believer. Believe it's a part of who we are. It's not what we do, Mama Glow. It's who we are. We are givers. He gave. When God wanted a harvest, He gave. God wanted the sons of men. He had one son, one seed. But He wanted sons. He had one son, but He had a desire for seed. So he took his one son and made him seed. And he sowed him in the earth. And he sprung up on the third day. And now you and I are the fruit of that singular moment when God sowed what he had in his hand. God sowed it in the earth and it's a principle of life. He gave so we give. Come on somebody. And so when you study the word of God, you'll see different components to this truth in your heart and life. That we are. And our giving is not born of the law of a carnal commandment, but a biblical pattern. A biblical pattern. Today, I want to challenge you in closing this morning here on 1149. I wrote down many passages of Scripture of my gleaning that I don't have the time. Time would prevent me from going to today at all. But I want to remind you of just a couple in closing today. So many passages of Scripture. You have to start somewhere. Come on, do you believe that? I mean, believe you, you just literally have to start somewhere. You have, to, you have to, if this has been something that's distant from you and your family, there still comes that moment when you say, I've got to cross the bridge. I've got to go across the divide. I've got to somehow start somewhere. Because I want to become one noted of God that I'm faithful and all God's committed to me. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your increase. So shall your barns burst with plenty and your vats will come overflowing with new wine. See, I believe today that when you even look in Jesus' own teaching through the Gospels, and the Gospels were a bridge. It was a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus in his own giving, or in, as he taught, so many components of giving. But he, he did challenge us. He challenged us on more than one occasion in the Scripture. In Luke 6 and 38, he said, Give and it shall be given unto you, shake, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Men will give into your bosom. On and on throughout the scriptures. But I usually don't even focus my attention on the gospels. I usually turn my attention to the New Testament epistles. And I've already alluded for you that when I give, I want you to know when I give, I'm giving through the mechanism of the church. I'm giving through the mechanism of this church. And I'm giving to Melchizedek, to Jesus who is my high priest. I give through this church. Does that make sense to you? Whether I'm giving in missions, whether I'm giving in a special offering, or I'm bringing my tithe, I'm giving through the mechanism of this church to my great high priest who is Jesus. I believe one of the, the most important things that we do with our giving, and this is something that some people have, a trouble, with, have trouble with, is that as we give the, in the New Testament epistles, the first place, just as it was in the Old Testament, the purpose of our giving is to provide support for the ministry. Preacher's got to have a house to live in too. Car to drive, right? Got to, that, that, that's a part. First Corinthians 9, Paul said this. He said, don't put a muzzle on the ox that treads out the corn. 
Come on, somebody. I just want you to know today that you need to, you need to accept that. If you've struggled with giving and say, well, I give and, 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 and the preachers, that's the biblical pattern. Paul said, God has ordained it that those who preach the gospel live of the gospel. Secondly, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 tells us also about giving even beyond. Giving even beyond. And in this passage I close with today, I won't even go there and turn to it. But the Apostle Paul, in this context, does apply giving to sowing. He said, if you sow sparingly. Come on, I didn't write this. I don't make this stuff up. He said, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow generously... You'll reap generously. And it's not always in financial reward that you reap. It's not always that somebody's going to come and put money in your hand. But Paul said this in that passage, 2 Corinthians 9, for sake of time, you read it on your own. He said, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That means in whatever situation of life that you might find yourself in, as difficult as your plight may be, God's going to make all grace abound towards you. You'll navigate your way out of it. I shared with you last week that me and my family are in a little bit, it was, I don't like to share my personal issue in front of you, but a little bit of a plight, a little bit of an indecision, trying to find direction and all those things. But one thing I'm confident of, one thing I know in my heart of hearts, God's going to make all grace abound towards me and my family. God's going to make it because he promised us in the word of God. If we so generously We're going to reap generously. God's going to cause all things to work together for our good. For those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So today I'm closing as I ask you in just a moment of time. How we're going to conclude this service. We're going to conclude with a prayer moment. And then we're going to do what we do every week. We're going to bring our offering to the front. We're going to present it to God. I want to go back to where I began the sermon over on today. Number one. Some of you here, me included, I give, out of, I give out of blessing. It's not born of need in essence. I'm not giving all that I got today. I'm thankful to be able to give. Come on. I'm not asking you to empty your life savings here today. You give as God lays in your heart. We give out of our abundance. Thank God for that blessing. Right? That's a, that's a, that's a special place. and I thank God for that. Secondly, I marvel at those who are giving out of need. Don't you? We, anybody that's ever seen somebody that has two and gives one, come on somebody, has one and gives it, whatever it is, sacrificial giving. There are those every week that will walk the aisle of this church right here with limited resources, just living week by week, month by month, and they will give their faithful tithe and offering to God. May God richly reward them. Come on somebody. Both on this side of eternity in, in eternal God's eternal kingdom. Number three, there will be some of you that will come down that you've been in that transition period. You know, and I'm okay with the transition periods. It's necessary. You have to learn this. You have to learn it, don't you? Come, listen to me today real quickly. You have to learn these principles. And when I see people grow, I get so excited because I know it's not coerced. It's not manipulated. We've not strong-armed you. Nobody strong arms you to come down and give. Nobody wants that. God doesn't want you to give begrudgingly. That's what the passage said. He loves a a cheerful giver. And when I see people begin to grow in their faith, 
I never judge somebody that's new in the context of growing and developing and learning and they're working these things out and God is teaching them these principles and and they're maturing in their faith. And so I value that equally as well. But today, that fourth category, nobody knows who you are except for God and perhaps except for the two that read the report. This is your moment. This is your moment where you can say, you know what? I can start. I can begin somewhere. Because I want to begin to set a precedence for me, my family, my house, my house. So does that make sense today? I can start right here, right now. And say, Pastor Brown, I can join myself with the faithful believers of this church. And giving to God faithfully. I'm going to stop relying upon my own wisdom. I'm going to stop rationalizing why I can't give. Come on. And I'm going to start believing that God has entrusted me with resources. Therefore, I can and I will give. Does that make sense today? Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed in the presence of God. Today, Father, in the name of Jesus.